The tool chain for modern data science can be intimidating. How do you choose between all the data visualization libraries out there? How about creating interactive web apps from those analysis? On this episode, we dive into a project that attempts to bring that whole story together, Holoviz. Holoviz is a coordinated effort to make browser-based data visualization in Python easier to use, easier to learn, and more powerful. We have Philip Rudiger from Holoviz here to guide us through it. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 269, recorded June 15th, 2020. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is sponsored by Brilliant.org and Datadog. Please check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Philip, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have you here. Now, we're going to talk about a bunch of cool libraries that are all brought together around this Holoviz overall meta project, if you will, to kind of make, yeah, exactly, this umbrella to make working with data and exploring it and visualizing it in Python a little bit easier. And I I think that's a a great project and it looks like it's getting a lot of traction and I'm happy to be here to chat about it. We're excited to talk about the various libraries in it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Before we get to that, though, let's start with your story. How'd you get into programming in Python? So I got started with programming pretty late. And so apart from like the usual thing of like the 90s, you had like a GeoCities website and you hacked some HTML and CSS. Uh, I really didn't get started with actual programming until I joined a electronic engineering course uh, in undergrad. Um, so I moved from uh, Germany to the UK to study electronic engineering and music technology, thinking I was, was better at music than I really was. But I took a liking <laughs> to kind of programming. We did some programming in C and Verilog, so pretty low-level stuff. And then yeah. towards the end of that project, kind of that undergrad degree, I developed a simulator of like bipedal locomotion in C++, which was far more complex than I'd envisioned it. But it was really exciting to me to kind of actually get into like a big project of my own. And from there, I then joined a master's course and started programming in Python. Uh, doing data analysis, and we had this simulator called Topographica, which did kind oh, of... That's cool. You talked about working on this bipedal uh, locomotion simulator in C++. Like, forget the language. That kind of stuff is trickier than it seems like it should be, right? Oh, absolutely. Because, because back then I had no idea about neural networks. It was like I just kind of jumped in, heard about neural networks, heard about like genetic programming. So I built a huge network with way too many parameters and assumed like <laughs> genetic programming would, would make it work. It didn't. It didn't really work. The simulator worked, so it did flop around. And, like my little bipedal humanoid would flop around a little bit, but it never actually managed to generate actually real <laughs> bipedal motion. Yeah, I guess uh, there's something to training these models correctly and getting them, you know, set up right in the first place. It's not just magic that you can throw at a problem, right? Yes, but then I decided this thing wasn't complicated enough, so I'd actually try and solve the brain. So that's. I then joined a master's and PhD uh, graduate program, neural informatics, and yeah, hoping to actually learn about how these things actually work. Oh, that's really cool. So was that like trying to model the way brains and synapses work using neural networks? Yes. So it's like it was pretty close to what you consider like a convolutional neural network nowadays. Well, they were around back then. They weren't as popular. Yeah. And then, but then we also had like recurrent connections and it was, the idea was to model the human visual system, basically, or just generally the mammalian visual system. 
And so starting with very low level. What kind of problems were you trying to do? What were you trying to ask it to do and see if it, what was success for you? <laughs> it was really, the idea was that it was self-organizing, right? So that you didn't have to pre-program a bunch of like known stuff into, into the network or just kind of organize like, like many of the uh, convolution neural networks nowadays do. But we were trying to kind of keep it closer to the actual biology. So we had different cell types that were interacting and mm-hmm. those models were tremendously complex and it was just super hard to analyze them. Like I started having these huge model outputs. Like I have like 60, 100 page outputs of like a model run of PDFs with just images in it. And that's actually where I started developing these visualization tools. Uh, so me and a colleague of mine were like, yeah, this isn't feasible. We can't analyze these things properly. <laughs> just looking, like flipping through PDFs, I'd, I'd wake up and like flip through these PDFs and almost kill myself. And then I started, we started writing this. Yeah. It's like trying to watch the green in the matrix, right? Like just trying <laughs> like, no, I can't see it this way. This is, we got to look at it better. Yes, precisely. So the idea was that we start building something like you have these huge parameter spaces, right? It's like excitatory strength, inhibitory strength, the model would evolve over time. And so we had these very complex parameter spaces that we were trying to explore. And so we built this tool called Holoviews to kind of start digging into that and kind of visualizing like what effect does this parameter actually have on the evolution of the model? So you could right. drag a slider and see the accessory strength does this to the model, the inhibitory strength does that. And so then this is how it evolves over time. And that was really breakthrough to actually start analyzing. But it also meant that I eventually started spending more time building this visualization tool than I was actually spending on my, my actual project. And I well, found that's one of the challenges. I found out in the end, I found that more rewarding than actually working on. <laughs> yeah, that's the real danger, right? Is like, uh, I mean, I started getting into programming doing research on complex dynamical systems and, and math and, and whatnot. And I, after a while, I realized, you know, the part of this project that really makes me happy is when I'm not doing the math. <laughs> I, that was a sign that I should probably be doing something else. But it's, it is really fun to, to build these things. I also do think it's, you know, it's a challenge of research projects and this academic stuff in general. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to get credit for yeah, yeah. that, right? So, like you're not, they're not going to go, man, that's a, a killer contribution to data science that you made. Here's your PhD. They're like, where's the network? Where's this paper, right? Right. Where's the publication? Yeah, exactly. Where's the publication? Is. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, we did publish a paper on all of these, and that was turned out to be the only paper I published in my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> the rest, I mean, yeah, basically my models didn't work until the very end, like two weeks before I handed in my uh, thesis. The model started working, and I actually had results, but I never got around to actually publishing them. Man, that's down to the wire. Yeah, it was really down to the wire. And it's, yeah, I'm kind of <laughs> glad that's over with. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's better late than never in that case. So... That's uh, how you got into programming and found your way over to Python. I mean, obviously, it's a, a natural place to go. Python is if you're doing neural networks. What time frame was this and like what year was this? So I joined this. It was a really good program. So it was the Doctoral Training Center in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. It actually doesn't exist anymore. So it was part of the uh, informatics department. But they had close collaboration with the neuroscience department, and I joined in 2010, and the first year was a master's program, and then it was kind of, it took me way longer than it should to finish my <laughs> graduate program, but uh, I think in 2015, I finally did um, in the thesis and did much offense. Yeah, yeah, cool. I'm just wondering, you know, you started in 2010 with, with some of this stuff. 
if you started now, how much easier do you think it would be or would it be basically the same to work on this, the visualization problems, the neural network problem? It just seems like that has come so far in the last five years. Oh, absolutely. So I, back then, I remember like we had, obviously we had to interface with C code a lot. And so we had to, we used something called SciPy Weave, which many people probably don't know about anymore. Yeah. But it was this really awkward interface for C extensions. And nowadays that would be, I mean, you've got things like Numbo, we could write the kernels that were running these neural networks in like in pure Python and just did compile it to something really optimized. Right, absolutely. Same with the visualization tools. There's like so many interactive visualization tools at this point. So back then, for example, Holopies was built using on top of Loop. That's what it output and it did the actual rendering. Nowadays we build on um, Bokeh and Potly. And so we could have gotten a lot more insights just interactively exploring this data. That's really cool. It's been such a huge evolution of tools. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, what are you up to these days? What do you do day to day? So it's, it's really nice. Uh, I have kind of the freedom to switch between, well, not total freedom, but we kind of, when I joined Continue Analytics, which is now Anaconda, in 2015, actually, before I handed in my thesis, I was running out of funding and then joined Anaconda to kind of as a day job between writing my thesis. <laughs> All right. And so I joined to do consulting. Basically, I'd solve uh, machine learning visualization problems for various uh, government clients, corporations, and so on. But from the very beginning, we kind of had this idea of we build open source tools that would solve people's problems and then use them in our consulting. That kind of model has worked really well for us. Basically, the entire Holovis suite of tools was built kind of as a, as a spending quite a bit of open source time to unpaid or unbillable time on the open source side. But also, kind of, for example, the panel was built with funding from U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So they decided to take a gamble with us and built this new dashboarding framework. And so I had the freedom for over basically six, nine months uh, to build this new tool. Yeah, panel is really cool. We'll talk about that for sure. Um, so yeah, I go between kind of most of my time is consulting work, but as much as possible, we try to contribute the stuff we work on during that time back to the open source. Yeah, and so you mostly mostly do remote work, I would guess. Being yes, so actually, in. I was in Edinburgh after, after Anaconda in Austin. Yeah, yeah, I was in Edinburgh for years, and then last year I moved here back to Berlin, which is where I grew up. And actually, we had an office. So, so Anaconda just opened an office here, and it was. I thought it would be nice to actually spend like two to three days a week just actually going to the office, seeing people, have a more regular routine. Yeah, yeah. Just work until three a.m. and then getting up at like <laughs> before noon. But and then COVID happened, and we're back to being fully remote. Yeah, yeah. Well, going to be around people. Yeah, not everyone's used to it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's a bit of a bummer. I mean, for folks like us who can re- work remotely and just carry on mostly doing what we're doing, it's a bit of a bummer. For a lot of people, it's a tragedy, right? It's it's a huge, huge problem. Yeah. But um, especially yeah, with the it's, kids, I, it's, yeah, I don't know how people do it. Yeah. I know. It seems really, really scary. Uh, hopefully, we get through that soon and we can go back to an office. Uh, who knows <laughs> what people's yeah, desire to get back to work together will be like uh some of these remote ideas i think are going to stick and some of people are kind of like oh so glad that's over yeah i think so particularly i mean it's really not a good test for like people are talking like this is going to usher in the revolution of but it's a forced forced scenario right people don't have child care they're stuck at home yeah so i don't know if it'll just not just put certain people just off of remote work entirely because of the circumstances. well i think you touched on the real challenge it's one thing to say, well, let's all try to be remote for a while. It's another to say, let's work with your small children around you all the time. <laughs> like <laughs> that, that is the real struggle, I think, as a, a parent to 
find the time and the focus, right? So I think it's an unfair test, but if it's working under these scenarios, this is like the worst case scenario. So obviously- And it still seems to be mostly working, right? Exactly, exactly. It's interesting. Also, it's kind of nice. I actually kind of like, I don't know, you have a client meeting and then it will scroll in. humanizes people. Yeah, yeah, it does humanize people a little bit. I think, uh, you know, it's- don't want to go too far into it. Like you, you know, watch the news or you watch like comedy shows and that are still going. And it's just like, yeah, everyone's at their couch or at their kitchen table or just their little home office. And yeah, it's funny. So let's talk about the history of this project a little bit. So you, you started with hollow viz. Hollow views. Yeah. Hollow views. Yes. So hollow. Yeah. It's kind of confusing. And and there's even more confusing history around it. Virtual. I'm sure we'll get into this portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Brilliant.org. Brilliant has digestible courses in topics from the basics of scientific thinking all the way up to high-end science like quantum computing. And while quantum computing may sound complicated, Brilliant makes complex learning uncomplicated and fun. It's super easy to get started, and they've got so many science and math courses to choose from. I recently used Brilliant to get into rocket science for an upcoming episode, and it was a blast. The interactive courses are presented in a clean and accessible way, and you could go from knowing nothing about a topic to having a deep understanding. Put your spare time to good use and hugely improve your critical thinking skills. Go to talkpython.fm slash brilliant and sign up for free. The first 200 people that use that link get 20% off the premium subscription. That's talkpython.fm slash brilliant, or just click the link in the show notes. How did you go from like trying to create better visualizations to this larger project? I guess, you know, as, as a way of introduction, maybe like tell people how you got there and then like give us a high level view of what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So we started with all of use, uh, which was actually built on this project called Param. Uh, so Param is kind of like, uh, we now have data classes in Python, kind of parameters on classes uh, that are typed and so on. And there's projects like Traitlets. So Param was kind of the foundation of everything built on top of that to kind of have type validation and just general semantic validation as well. So this thing is, a, is okay. a, not just a tuple, but it's a range of two numbers. Right? It actually represents a range. That was kind of the, the initial right. thing, which had been around kind of before I even got into Python. And then we built all of these on top of that. And then one of our first projects at uh, Continuum, back in the Continuum days, was for the UK Met Office to build, kind of extend Holoviews to have geographic support, brought about GeoViews, which is kind of just an extension for Holoviews. And then... Right, obviously focused on, you know, geographical data and map data and whatnot. Yes, yeah, Mm -hmm. handling the projections for you and stuff like that, which is quite nice. But then, I mean, what we saw over and over again as part of our consulting project was people had these analysis and... Uh, a lot of them were notebooks, and then people would share these notebooks, but really someone who doesn't know about code is kind of scared or put off by all the code in, in, in this notebook, and then they want another way to share it. And that's kind of how we started building uh, dashboarding tools. Right. So notebooks are pretty nice to show people, but at least in Jupyter, as far as I know, there's not a great way to say, please load this with every bit of code collapsed. Right. right. So, I mean, there's there's templates, but maybe they're kind of obscure. Not everyone is familiar with them. And just generally, like, if you just want to have everything nicely presented as a nice layout that you put together, uh, there wasn't really tools for that. Right? Yeah, right, right. Okay. But all of that has changed. Um, I'll get into that in a little bit. And then we just needed a name for all of this stuff, uh, which we decided on Pivot. Pivot seemed like a good name. It wasn't taken. 
And then it was a great name, but we had a little bit of pushback from the community. Right? Python sounds like just Python visualization, right? So it's kind of presumptuous to just think that it is a name we, we, we could keep. See, like you can't claim it all. Right. <laughs> and I think that, that was... We've a, got Bokeh, we've got, yeah. Yeah, it was a totally fair criticism. And we kind of talked to various community members and we're like, okay, PyBiz becomes this general thing and we're going to find a new name, which has been confusing. Like, obviously, we haven't, I think this was a year and a half ago and we kind of run with the PyBiz name for a year and a half as well. And so oftentimes when you see a blog post out there now, it's still refers to PyBiz as us, not the general resource that it's meant to be. Yeah, I was looking at some videos on YouTube about some like the presentations you gave and stuff. And I saw sometimes it was called Holovid and sometimes it was Pyviz. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what the relationship is here. And I see historically where that comes from. Yeah. Yeah. So I think overall, it's, it's, it was a good idea to kind of have Pyviz.org become this general resource. And we absolutely we were happy to kind of have this listing of all the different visualization dashboarding libraries on there. And we'd like to have more tutorial material to point to and stuff like that. So just it becomes a general resource. And Holovid is now our effort to kind of have a coordinated um, set of tools that work well together to have uh, browser-based visualization, dashboarding, and just make that easier and make it all fit together. Yeah, very cool. You're basically making a bunch of choices for people. Like, here's a way that you can plot stuff. Here's a way that you can stream data or process large amounts of data with what doesn't fit in RAM or whatever. Yeah, but you're not forcing them down that path, right? right? One of the things that was cool is like, okay, if you need more control or you want to do something different, you can just do this yourself. If you want to not do less work and accept the defaults or the, the default way of working, right? You can use something built in. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the idea that there's the way we've tried to communicate that is it's about shortcuts, not dead ends, right? To make it easy, the default should be good. You should just be able to get something on screen quickly, um, which is kind of the philosophy that I'm all of using in particular. Uh, you just wrap your data and it visualizes itself. But then you shouldn't be stuck there, right? It shouldn't be. There's plenty of libraries where you just put get your quick plot, but then it's really hard to customize from there. And that's something we had to yeah. learn as well, I think. Um, so Holovis is pretty opinionated, actually. And, and it's, it's it doesn't fit the regular model that people are thinking of, right? This imperative plotting model where you say, you get your figure, get your axes, you kind of modify each little bit of the axes. It's about just wrapping your data and have it to have it visualize itself. And then you can tweak like the options on it. And that, does, that model doesn't work for everyone, which is something we had to learn. We've kind of decided now that we'd rather meet people where they are, right? People already, there's already such a, such a big ecosystem of, of visualization tools. And at this point, even a big ecosystem of uh, dashboarding tools. And rather than tell people, like, this is the way you have to do it, you should just be able to plug in what you have and go from there. And that's a the philosophy behind the GPOP, which is kind of the wrapper yeah. around all of use, which just, if you use pandas, you'll know that pandas has a dot plot API which just well, takes your pandas data and you tell it a little bit of it, like, this goes on the x-axis, this goes on the y-axis, uh, I want to color by this variable, and then it gives you the plot. And we wanted to take that and kind of say, well, this works well for pandas, we want it to work for the entire pandas. Right. So HVPot is meant to work not just with pandas, but with Dask, X-Array, Network X, GeoPandas, and the most recent addition there is QDFs, um, so GPU data frame. Yeah, I haven't heard of QDF, that sounds really cool. But like Dask is very powerful. And I had Matthew Rockland on the show to talk about that. And it's like yeah, data, it's like pandas. Yeah, it's like pandas, but across multiple machines if necessary. <laughs> sort of thing that has the same if effect. If necessary, yeah. or across multiple cores locally. Yeah, there's lots of you yeah, scaling yeah. up and out. Yeah, yeah, it's super cool. And that's super nice, particularly 
because we have this data shader project, which basically takes your data and it's, you can describe it as like a fancy 2D histogram, right? You get some basically okay. heat map out, but it does this really fast. Uh, it's built on Mumba and Dask. Um, so you can generate basically images from data points really quickly. Uh, it doesn't just support point data. It supports polygons, it supports lines, it supports uh, regrading of rasters and quad meshes and tri meshes. And basically it just takes your data, renders it with Mumba and Dask, just put something on screen really, really quickly. And the idea there is just to have fast and accurate rendering of large data sets. And when we're, when we're talking large, that means like millions or billions. Of yeah, that's cool. I think it was on your project where you've got a, a picture of, was it the U.S. plotting yes. every single person and where they were? Right, 300 like, million data Super points. quickly? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 300 million data points a second or less. You can interactively zoom in and out. So I think particularly now that we have PDF support, which basically NVIDIA has this uh, new initiative called Rapids. Uh, where yep. they're rebuilding the PyData ecosystem on top of GPUs. And That's crazy. It is crazy, but you could crazy always awesome, use... Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you used to have to write these these CUDA kernels yourself, and it was really obscure, but now it's you just use your GPU and it just works. So they had an initial prototype for Data Shader, and uh, our collaborator of ours called John Meese, who now is chief scientist at Botley, I took that and, and wrote uh, extended data shader to support GPUs natively. So now you can, like, it takes maybe 10, 20 milliseconds to aggregate these 300 million data points. Wow. It's just incredible. So cool. And in theory, it's also scaled across multiple GPUs. I haven't been able to try that. Um, yeah. I don't have access to that. It's never ceased to amaze me how powerful GPUs are. All right. Yes. Every time I think, wow, it can do that. That's amazing. And then it's like, nope, it could do more. <laughs> exactly and yeah it's kind of for us it's coming full circle right gpus is g and gpus stands for graphical yeah if you actually wanted to use it for graphical stuff or visualization stuff there's basically well you have to write your own kernels it would be super painful but now that's that's possible yeah, thanks to all the hard work yeah that the reference, reference that's super cool very very cool all right so we've got hollow views and then related to that the library geo views you talked about h vplot. Yes. Talked about data shader. This is what we were just talking about, quickly rendering like 300 million points on a map. Mm -hmm. Talked about param as the basis for like the data class like functionality. And mm -hmm. we also have color set. Yes. Color set is just, we all know that color maps can be crucial. Um, I don't know if everyone mm -hmm. knows this, but I think the most famous example is the jet or rainbow color map that's been so derided for good reason. Basically, it distorts the data space terribly, and you can draw all kinds of false conclusions just because in, in color space, it's, it's, it can really distort things. Um, so there's actually scary stuff about potentially, like, doctors may have drawn false conclusions just by looking at the color maps uh, at jets, in misinterpreting jet, um, which is easy to do. Um, so we created Yikes. this package called uh, Color Sets, which basically just has a set of uh, conceptually uniform color maps. It actually takes work... I should have read up on this, but uh, basically we took a set of color maps that someone had published a paper about and kind of published, wrapped those for the Python ecosystem, and that's that became color set. So please look at the website to look to look up the names. I, I feel bad for not, not properly crediting the person here. That's really handy to have that put together and well thought through and yeah, choosing colors, one, that look good, and two, that are meaningful and not so easy. Yes, it's not easy, but it, I mean, the, thankfully the community has become really aware of this and there's a few packages like so it's, it's just good to see that happen. Particularly with, like, I think the turning point was when the default color map in not public was changed to Veritas. 
I think at one point it actually was Jet, wasn't it? The final star of the show here is Panel, which you talked about uh, being that six to nine month project that you got to work on new dashboarding tools. Yeah. So the Python ecosystem for a long time, R had Shiny and Shiny was is great. It's super cool. It makes it easy to kind of share your analysis in R. And Python didn't have this, right? It had, there was, early on, there was like this Jupyter dashboard project where you could take a Jupyter notebook and kind of arrange the cells a little bit and get a layout. And we used that for a little while, but then it was abandoned. But this was a problem that we kept coming back to. People wanted to share their analyses without, as an actual dashboard or just a little app. Yeah. And so we decided to build Panel. At, just before then, actually, Plotly came out with this project called Dash, which is also a really nice, nice library to build dashboards in Python. It requires a little bit more knowledge of CSS and even JavaScript in certain cases. And we wanted something where people could just drop in their analysis, their existing analysis. It, you could drop it in, you could wrap in a function and then annotate that, like this function depends on these things. And so when those things change, it updates kind of a reactive model. And we just wanted a library where you drop in your existing analysis, you've got some notebook, you want to share it, and reduce the friction of that, right? That's what we kept seeing right. over and over again in different organizations was the fact that they had a bunch of data scientists and then they had a visualization team and the data scientists would produce some analysis and then they have to hand it over to the visualization team who didn't necessarily work in Python, right? It could be they had some custom JavaScript framework or, yeah, there was just friction in making that, that transition from basically Python analysis to shareable dashboard and that process needs to become easier. Right. And that's how panel emerged. So panels a way where, yeah, you can basically lay out different parts of visualization and it's like organizing a notebook with not necessarily showing the code and you get some little sliders and other widgets that you can interact with that drive it. And to me, it feels like just a, a really nice way to quickly take what you were already doing in exploratory mode and put it in, up in a user interactive way without learning Flask, APIs, JavaScript. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Datadog. Are you having trouble visualizing bottlenecks and latency in your apps, and you're not sure where the issue is coming from or how to solve it? With Datadog's end-to-end monitoring platform, you can use their customizable built-in dashboard to collect metrics and visualize app performance in real time. Datadog automatically correlates logs and traces at the level of individual requests, allowing you to quickly troubleshoot your Python application. Plus, their service map automatically plots the flow of requests across your application architecture so you understand dependencies and can proactively monitor the performance of your apps. Be the hero that got your app back on track at your company. Get started today with a free trial at talkpython.fm slash datadog. Precisely. So yeah, the, the idea is that yeah, you just have your analysis, you drop them into this thing, you put, put it in a bunch of rows and columns, lay it out on your screen, and then you put one little command at the end of this thing that you've built, the layout you've built called servable, and then you can run panel serve the notebook and it just pops up with your dashboard. Nice. How do you host it? So actually, it's just built on Bokeh, so it's just a Tornado server, so you can just host it on any of the cloud server providers. We are trying to kind of build out our documentation to make that like really simple process, or even thinking about like having a command to say, I'm to deploy this to AWS or to Google Cloud or whatever. Right, but right. yeah, that's still some... areas we're actually working on. But in the end, or it's just... What just... about like a container? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay, yes. Cool. Yeah, that's... Yeah, for our examples, we have... We build on this tool called Anaconda Project. It wraps a Conda environment with mm-hmm. some commands, and then it deploys it. 
And what we're hoping for is that I think there's a PR, or maybe it's already merged, where you basically just give it this project file, which is just a YAML file with the environment and those commands that it, it runs, and then it builds a Docker container for you. So I think that that's a really nice route to go. To yeah. Contain everything, your entire environment, and your the commands you need to run, and then you just get it contained. Oh. Yeah, maybe even go to like some kind of hosted Kubernetes cluster service and just go take this, run it there, make sure it keeps running, upgrade it for me if I need it. Yes, but we're certainly looking forward. So if anyone's interested in helping us out on that front, we're always looking for contributors. Yeah, sure. But otherwise, yeah, we're also working on including blocking page and including yeah. It's a bit of an orthogonal problem and skill set to solving visualization, right? Like it's one thing oh, that I can do the JavaScript. They're cool, cool visualization. It's another to like, well, now I do DevOps too. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Uh, although it's something. Yeah. I mean, it's a good skill to learn. So I'm happy to dive into it a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So on your website, I think it's under the getting started section. So at holoviz h o l o b i z dot org, <laughs> you've got a, a document that sort of talks about given these different scenarios more of a picture, I guess, you know, answer a couple of questions about it and we'll help you choose the subset of tools to kind of flow this together, right? Right. Yes. You want to maybe talk us through some of these scenarios. So it says, are you working with tabular data, working with like other types of arrays, network, n-dimensional or streaming data? And then there's like sort of this flow of like, all right, here's how you piece together these tools to come up with something excellent. Yes. So we call this the mermaid diagram. And yeah, if you look at holobus.org, you'll find it there. I actually don't know why it's called a mermaid diagram, but there you go. But yeah, the general idea is that it takes you from the type of data, as you said. So let's say you've got some tabular data, and now you need to decide like what library should I choose to load this data. So you might below a certain threshold. Pandas is totally fine. And if you want to go to geographic data, you use geopandas, or actually geometries. Geographic geometries use geopandas. Right. And just so people know... It- yeah, and you're cut off here. You say, do you have more than 50,000 rows? I mean, obviously, it, it varies a little bit on the computer you have. Yeah, that's it's pretty arbitrary. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But it's, it gives you a kind of a sense. It's not millions of rows or or billions or something like that, right? It's it's not that high of a number to say, okay, well, maybe you want to consider something other than pandas right. for working on some of this. But yeah, it, it, okay. Yeah. Is it a huge amount of data? By some definition, a huge and if not, is it geospatial? Precisely. And then you might use geopandas. Otherwise, you may use uh, Dask, for example, instead. And I'm just a Dask is a really great tool. We've already mentioned um, to load. Mm-hmm. Like you've got yeah, millions or billions of rows, and you just want to, you can't load it all into memory. You just don't have the space. And you want to build a Dask. And then the whole point behind our ecosystem, particularly HVplot, is you shouldn't have to change any code, right? You, you, whether you choose pandas or Dask or now, the QDF library, you shouldn't have to change any code. You should just be able to dump your data into this, this framework and then call .hvplot on it, and then you get your plot out. So that's kind of the philosophy here. The same applies to, like, you've got some uh, n-dimensional arrays. We generally recommend, for example, that you go with X-Array. Um, so X-Array is really underrated as a library. It should really be more popular. I don't know, maybe not that many people have, like, n-dimensional arrays, but it's kind of pandas for... For n-dimensional arrays, yeah, for beyond tabular, right? Beyond tabular, exactly. Yeah. So you've got, okay. I don't know, you've got satellite imagery over time, right? Or satellite, right. Or microscope data also over time, like or Z-stack over time, like four-dimensional, five-dimensional, whatever. Okay. For that, it's just really nice to explore it that way. So that for that kind of data, you might use that instead, or you might keep it simple and just use NumPy and uh, or Dask arrays, which kind of is a lower level. Yeah. 
But in the end, the idea is that, yeah, in any case, you just drop it into hvplot with the .plot call, and then you get this holoviews object out of it. And this holoviews object will already display itself, so you already have an interactive plot. But then you might have the issue, like, yeah, this was a lot of data. This, we, we used a DAS data frame for a reason, right. or a DAS array. So you may not want to dump it straight into your browser. Dumping a gigabyte to your browser is <laughs> surefire way to crash it. <laughs> <laughs> Even with the, the speed to download it quickly, you know, that much JavaScript is going to make it hurt. Yeah, it's really going to make it hurt, yeah. Okay, we'll fall over. Your browser will fall over. So that's then you just have the option to hvplot to say, data shape this instead. And so that, that means that you've got server-side aggregation to kind of aggregate this data as you're zooming and panning around. And what you get out is a nice interactive bokeh plot using hvplot. Or if you kind of want to do a bit more customization, hvplot actually doesn't directly support plotly or map um, output, but with a little bit of data you can get there too. And then once you're there, you can save it, you can share your, share your notebook, or you can dump it into panel to build your dashboard. Right, right, turn it into a dashboard. Okay, yeah, very cool. I'll link to this flowchart for people over so they can think about it when they're checking this out. And I think it also gives you a sense of, even outside of Holoviz, there's useful stuff here, like, do I have streaming data? Maybe check out StreamZ or Indimensional, like you said, check out X-Ray and, and Dask. And just this idea of, like, how do I think about the right underlying library rather than trying to jam everything into pandas or numpy or something. Right, yes. Yeah, a lot of people I still see, like, 2D in pandas and really, yeah, try to switch to X-Ray. It's, it's a great library. And actually, pandas used to have this n-dimensional data structure called a panel, and they've actually deprecated that, <laughs> saying, yes, please use, please just use X-Ray, because that's what it's made for. I see. Okay. Interesting. I didn't realize that. When you talked about visualizing millions and millions of data points quickly in the browser, you said, okay, we'll use data shader. And I don't know that we necessarily dove into it enough to say exactly what it does. So basically, let me see if I get it right how it works. It can look at millions, hundreds of millions of data points and say, well, the size of the graph is really this. And if you look at these 10,000 at this scale, that's kind of going to be the same. Is that how it works? Or is it like, does it downsample somehow? Or how does it how does it actually make meaningful pictures or a process of that? That's the cool thing about it. It's, so it actually is that fast, right? It actually, it always looks at all your data. Okay. But if, if you zoomed into something, obviously it won't. If it's out of your report. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it zooms it, in, but, like it has the clipping outside the rectangle. Yeah. But if, you, if you're zoomed out, it actually does iterate over your entire billion data points and aggregates them within 50, 100 milliseconds. Is that happened on the server, right? It doesn't exactly. The browser, right? Exactly. That happens okay. on the server. And then all it has to do is send the image of the aggregated data, which... Or if you have 10 million points or a billion points, then a thousand by thousand pixel image is going to be much, much smaller than the actual whole data set. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, that's uh, basically the same size, no matter how much data you have. You exactly, know, yes. Compression so a, fix- a little bit, but right, not so much. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you get a fixed size image out of it. And that works with most visual elements. We've kind of been expanding the visual elements when DataShare was first created, I think it aggregated point data and line data, but now it kind of expanded cover polygons, tri meshes, quad meshes, uh, just downsampling images um, as you're zooming. So if you've got a huge like one gigapixel image, you can dump it into data shader, it'll downsample it dynamically. Um, so you can zoom wow. the panel around and explore it. Yeah, that's great. And I'm looking at it, it says that it has scalability with uh, Dask or CUDF. Mm-hmm. How do you configure it to make it choose one or the other? On the server. If you have a DAS data frame, it'll just take that. It'll take that and basically the way a DAS data frame works is basically you should think of it as a bunch of chunks of basically underlying pandas data frames, right? 
And these, these chunks might be distributed right. across, like it might be on your machine, or it might be across like a whole cluster of machines. And so it just keeps the computation local. It means that the aggregation for each of those chunks happens on that particular uh, node in your cluster. And then once it's done the aggregation, it just has to send the, the fixed size image back to the main node um, to aggregate that. And so gotcha. that way you can distribute the computation, but still have it available for visualization. Okay, so what you provide to the data shader basically tells it how to process it. Do you give it a pandas data frame? Do you give it a DAS data frame? Do you give it exactly. a PDF frame? And it just goes, and it just knows how to work with all of them, but that, that implies how it's computed. Yes. So those, those three in particular are, yeah. Got it. Okay. Now I see. So we actually, on datashader.org, if you look at, I think, one of the user guides or even sorting guides, uh, there's a nice handy little table to show you, like, for this data type, like, for point data, these data backends are supported. And for points, for example, it might be pandas, dask, and Kudia. Yeah. For a for an image, it might be x-ray only, because it doesn't really make sense to show your image into pandas. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, it seems like a really nice way to fit all these things together and just such a great API. Maybe we could talk about some of the projects or communities that are using all of this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One ecosystem that's really taken up these tools, particularly HVPOT and DataShader, is the Pangeo Initiative, which is basically it's an initiative by various geoscience folks to build like this big data platform to analyze data in the cloud, right? So you used to have all these different data silos where like, you had this data in the cloud, you'd have to download it onto your local machine and explore it. And they've been building basically a platform so you can easily kind of deploy your own Jupyter Hub and then keep your data in the cloud, but analyze it also in the cloud. Right? And so for right. these people, so it might be climatologists, there's a lot of climatologists or oceanographers. Oceanographers, that's right. And they have these huge data sets, right? They have huge meshes of data, and they need to yeah. do them. But they weren't really tools to do that. And thanks to all these open source tools like Dask, you can load the data from the cloud, aggregate it using DataShader, and kind of zoom and pan interactively around without yeah. having just kind of downloading the data and having to fiddle with all that stuff. Uh, so Pangeo is, right. is a really great use of it, and makes me super happy to see like, climatologists actually using these tools. Yeah, solving some real problems. That's awesome. Also, Intake. What's that? Intake. Oh, that's a really interesting project. So again, actually, this is also leveraged by the Pantheon community. So Intake is a project. If you've ever had to, like, you have a bunch of data sources and you have data catalogs, and if you want to keep track of all your data, you want to not have custom scripts to load this kind of data and that kind of data, Intake lets you write one catalog data catalog, which is really just a YAML file to specify, I've got these CSV files here, and there's... 10,000 of them, and I'll load them somehow, and then I've got this netcdf file there, and I've got a bunch of parquet files here. You can kind of encapsulate it all in this nice little data catalog, load it, and then uh, explore it. And so in the notebook, it literally you just point it to your catalog and say, load this, and it, thanks to the specification in that YAML file, it'll just load it. And that has integration with our tools in a number of ways. So for First of all, you can even put uh, your HV plot spec into your data catalog. So you can say, kind of, I have this default plot that I always look at for this data, right? So you can say, in this data source, plot, plot the X column, like points at the longitudes in this CSV file, longitudes and latitudes, and then it'll automatically generate your plot. Um, kind of, you pre-declare your plots in this, in this catalog file. I see. Okay. 
Yeah, that's super cool. Another thing it has, it has a little GUI built on top of PAL, which kind of lets you explore your data, right? You've already got your data, and now you can just buy a graphical interface and click around and say, I want to plot this column against this column and color it by that. Cool, so you specify how to import it and whatnot, and then visualize it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And then what's QCross filter? And so I only recently found out about this. So NVIDIA, as I said, has this uh, Rapids initiative, and they kind of, they've been playing around with visualization in various forms. And interestingly, they built this QCross filter library, which kind of builds on top of Panel and Bokeh to build cross-filtering applications. Kind of, okay, so cross-filtering, it's also referred to as link brushing. So you select something on one plots and kind of you see that reflected in other plots. And that's built on panel and basically lets you build dashboards of like cross-filtering stuff really easily um, using GPU support. Super cool. And then some space stuff as well. These are actually projects that various consulting clients we've worked with. So one of them is the LSST um, telescope. I think it's recently actually got a real name, which is the Vera Rubin telescope. It's one of the largest optical telescope in the world. And they basically approached me saying they wanted to basically they wanted to do some Q&A on the data that comes out of this telescope, right? This, um, this telescope. Um, and there's huge amounts of data, right? There's ter- terabytes a day. It can be challenging because they have 50 petabytes of images and data like they're going to be collecting and stuff. And yeah, right, that's, over a few that's years, challenging yeah. to go view. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Particularly, yeah, yeah. If you have to do the same analysis every day, then you kind of want a tool that can handle this stuff. And so I... I handed over this project to Quantsight. So our famous Travis Oliphant, who was our former CEO, kind of went off and started this other consulting firm called Quantsight, and I handed over this project to them. And they've been kind of bit of help for me, but not very much. They've built this really nice dashboard to kind of view the Q&A stuff for them. And yeah, yeah. ideally it will handle 500 petabytes, but maybe it'll need some more clicking to quite get there. Yeah, but still, that's pretty impressive. That's awesome. And it's cool to see all of these projects using the libraries you guys put together, they're probably giving it some pretty serious testing. So oh, absolutely. Testing know, the, the and then just the, the science. Little, yeah. And they'll absolutely find all the like little performance issues. And yeah, it's, it's great. That's yeah, actually it, the best part of exactly. like, my job, right? I, I don't just... Building open source tools is awesome. But really, if you're completely divorced from like any the actual users of those libraries, it's really hard to tell, like, are you doing the right thing or are you just wasting your time? So it's, it's super nice to go back and forth between actual consulting uh, where you see people's problems and then going back to the tool and kind of improving that battle. Absolutely. Yeah, you need this blend to keep it real. But uh, if you're too focused on just solving problems for consulting, you don't get that spare time to develop new stuff as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to close the conversation out with two quick things. One, I really like to explore things like this, like visual play analysis type of libraries and whatnot by just looking at some examples because usually you can look at some nice pictures and get a quick sense. So you guys have a bunch of different tutorials or simple little examples, expositions, showing them off. Maybe is there like a couple of favorites you just want to point people at and tell them what it does? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know how best to do this. So what we can do is, so most of our websites, particularly for like hollow views and geo views and panel, we have a little gallery. Um, so maybe we can look at some of yeah. those. But then we also have this website, examples.pivots.org, which really we want Contributions that don't just use our tools. Again, private is meant to be this general thing. So if people are interested in contributing their own examples. Yeah, just grab a couple that are, you think are like really cool and show off stuff. 
people would appreciate. Yeah, so let's go with the one that you talked about earlier, the uh, census example. So if you go to examples.privates.org. Yep. Just search for census. It's, it'll be right on the on the main page, right? Uh, there's like a little gallery, yeah. and then um, if you click on that, there's at the top right, there's the census example, which kind of explores how do I use... Yeah, I've got this census data set. How do I actually display it? It's like start exploring it. So it starts off by kind of loading the data set, which loaded in this case with a library called well, and in, in fact, it's just loaded with Dask, but we've got this little wrapper around Dask, which does spatial indexing. So spatial indexing means that it, it has built an index of the space. Uh, it's familiar with the term. It's an R tree. So it, it's super fast to say, show me the things that are near here or are right here. Precisely, yes. So if it's if you're yeah. zooming in, it no longer, as I talked about earlier, by default, data shader has to like, scan through the entire data set each time, even if you're zoomed in to just a little spot. With spatial indexing, you can say, Okay, this stuff is definitely not in my viewport. I don't, I don't even consider it. And so it becomes faster as you zoom in. Right. If you look at that notebook, we kind of start by loading the data set, data shading it, and we start with just simple, like linear aggregation. And what you'll immediately notice is that it's just black. If you think about the population in the US, there's a few hotspots, right? New York is super dense. All the cities are kind of dense, but New York is particularly dense. And so all you see with linear uh, color mapping is basically New York and then a few kind of blurry cities. A little bit of LA, a little bit of Chicago. That's about that's it. Awesome. Yeah, that's pretty okay. much it. And so the nice thing about data shader is that it kind of takes away that you can do linear or you can do log or you can kind of adjust the color map. And that's all kind of difficult. But by default, data shader actually does something called EQ hist, which is uh, histogram equalization, which means that it kind of, it adjusts the histogram of the uh, color map in such a way that the lowest number of, it's hard to explain, but it kind of equalizes <laughs> the color map in such a way that Talking actually... a picture over audio only. Yeah, it's, it's a hard one. But basically, it reveals your, the shape of your data, if, if not the exact like values. So you shouldn't use it for like right. reading out the exact values of something, but you sh- to get an overall idea of something, it's a really nice mechanism, and that kind of is part of what makes... like if you look at the data shader image, or you like sometimes on Twitter, I'll see like an image, and it just pops, and that's... The, yeah. <laughs> EQ, uh, the histogramic causation, makes sure that you see the overall shape of your data, not the exact values. And this nice. kind of goes through that example, goes through that, and kind of explains what does this actually do. So in the census data, you can see like you can see the shape of each city now. You can see kind of uh, a lot of the mountainous area in the west of the U.S. is kind of empty. And yeah, it really reveals like the, the population distribution in the U.S. And then yeah. it also kind of demonstrates how to manipulate your data, your color map to kind of show the hotspots, especially so you can kind of, because you've now aggregated into a fixed size image, you can say values above this value, like above this density, you color in red, and so you really get the cities to pop out. Yeah, very cool. And then maybe I won't go into it, too much detail on this one anymore, but do check it out. Sure, sure. But it really builds up, people can check it out, I'll link to it. And it, each one of these steps like builds up with just like a line or two of code. It's not Super complicated. Exactly right. Yeah, and then we kind of explore kind of depressing facts. So the data set has basically the race of, of all the individual people, and you can really see the segregation in different cities. It's kind of horrible to think about. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, it really reveals the <laughs> fact if you look at it. Wow. Yeah, I see. And then finally, it rounds out with like showing you how to because um, our tools are meant to work well together. The final example kind of demonstrates how to take this data and use Holoviews to generate an interactive plot where if it was running on a server, so on the, on the website, you're not going to be able to zoom very much, kind of gets very pixelated. But if you're running it on your own 
in a notebook yourself, or you deploy it to a server or a panel, for example, then you can zoom around and pan and just kind of zoom into individual people. That's yeah. Wow. That's wild. So maybe there's a whole bunch of examples over at examples.pyvis.org, and each one of the examples is tagged with the various libraries that people might want to explore. So there's a bunch here. People can go, go there and, yeah. and dig into them and check it out, and this is just one of them. Yeah, and we're trying to keep those up to date. And if you build a cool thing, please submit it. Yeah, awesome. All right, I guess maybe you could just touch really quick on awesome-panel.org and then tell us what's next with the whole project and probably be out of time then. I've been super happy to see. So, so community building is hard and... I think many open source developers realize this, and we're definitely still learning, but there's been quite a lot of interest in panel, and Mark Skarov-Matson, who's kind of, he works in uh, Denmark, um, built this uh, website called awesomepanel.org, which really kind of tries to show off what you can build with panel. So our examples kind of try to focus on the simpler stuff, uh, but Awesome Panel really shows you what you can do, and it's really impressive what he's done with uh, panel on awesomepanel.org has lots of resources for like how to best leverage things. I mean, a lot of stuff ideally would migrate back to our website. But yeah, he's built this complex multi-page site, uh, which takes you through like a lot of different uh, ways of using panel and has a lot of examples. Yeah, cool. It's kind of meta, right? Like there's panels involved in it as well. Oh yeah, it's, it's built on panel, right? <laughs> a website that's built entirely in panel. About panel. But also about panel. And yeah, I've, I've been <laughs> trying to take that further as well. So recently I did a talk for... Uh, our AnacondaCon, which is our conference here at Anaconda. And I uh-huh. tried to build the entire presentation, kind of a built a presentation tool on top of Panel to demo Panel. Yeah, awesome. Very, very cool. All right, so what's next with the whole project? Where are you guys going? So one thing that we've kind of been working on recently a lot is in terms of hollow views is we've added link selections. So you can now, in the spirit of shortcuts, not dead ends, you can generate your hollow views plots. And if they're all using the same data, you can just say, Link selections, apply it to these various components, and then it'll automatically look up all the link linking between the plots so that when you select on one, all the other ones update. That's I'm really excited about that. It makes it super yeah, easy to build that's, like that's super a cool. complex dashboard. So yeah, that's you dive kind of, into the data. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And particularly with the GPU support now, that's you can build like yeah. With GPU support and data shader, you can now like explore tens of millions or billions of data points using link selections really easily. It's, it's super cool. So that's one thing right, I'm excited cool. about. Okay. Another thing in terms of in, in the panel ecosystem I'm excited about is the next release is going to have uh, default templates. And so what that means is panels always had the ability to kind of just put stuff together. Uh, you say this thing goes in a row with this thing, like a bunch of widgets go in a row or a column, and then you put plot here. But if you want to have more control, you kind of have to write your own kind of uh, HTML and CSS to lay things out. And you have that ability using templates, but next release is going to. You might not want to exercise it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we, we're, we're, that's what we're trying to keep people from, right? We, we don't want people to right. have to do that kind of thing. So what we've done now is added some default templates where you basically say, "I want this to go in the sidebar. I want to do this to go in the header. I want this to go in the main area," and it looks like a polished website. Right? It's not just a bunch of things on a white page. It's actually yeah, cool. a nice looking thing. So I'm also really excited about that because. I think that's something that's been missing. So we've had a lot of cool little demos, but just like to build a whole nice polished looking dashboard. Yeah, a little more control. And that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of bridge that gap. And then the last thing I'm really excited about in this next release of the panel is integrating with other ecosystems. So if you're familiar with um, Jupyter, you'll know about IPA widgets. And IPA widgets has been like lots of libraries have now built on top of uh, Jupyter widgets to kind of 
know, there's things like uh, iPad volumes, Explore 3D volumes. There's just a whole bunch of libraries, right? And it's kind of been kind of been a shame right. that we well, it's, it's, we don't want to have divergent ecosystems, right? And so right. in this next release, we're going to be able to just put your iPad widget into your panel app or even your Bokeh app. Um, so this has been done at the Bokeh level since we built on Bokeh. You just dump it in there, and it just works. Even on the deployed uh, Tornado server, the Bokeh server, it'll just work and load the Jupyter widgets correctly, and it'll hook up all the communication for you. And so now we don't have these two diverging systems anymore. You can just use iPad widgets in panel, or you can go the other way and kind of say, well, we've got this deployment system, and there's this library called Vola, which kind of serves Jupyter notebooks as well. And so you can now put your panel app into Vola and just serve that. You just make sure that ecosystems don't diverge and you can use the tools that you want. Yeah, that's nice. Because you don't want to have to have a separate set of widgets for your visualizations and then people also building them for Jupyter. Of course, they would build them for there, right? right. So might yeah. as well just bring these together. Exactly, yeah. So it's been, been a long effort and there's still, I'm sure, some issues to iron out, but super excited to be able to ship that soon. Yeah. All right, well, very cool. Great project, great examples, and it looks like you got a lot of momentum going forward as well. So thanks for bringing all of your experience and talking about what you guys have built there. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really great to talk yeah. about this stuff. Yeah, you bet. Before we get out of here, though, you got to answer the final two questions. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? Oh, I'm still, I'm still on Emacs. My professor, who's now my boss at Anaconda, hooked me and I'm still there. Um, although I do dabble in VS Code now. Yeah, very cool. And probably some Jupyter as well at some point. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. I always have it like four Jupyter Lab tabs open and then Emacs on the side. Yeah, cool. And then notable PyPI package. You got a bunch here already. Like it's worth saying you can just pip install Holoviz. Right? Oh, there's a bunch. But yeah, I think I've already yeah, you can pip install Holoviz, which is kind of a good tutorial. But I really want to take this opportunity to plug some of the underlying like the libraries. Particularly X ray is awesome. I've already mentioned this. And Dask is awesome. So I really want to plug those. I agree. All right, very cool. So people are excited about Holoviz. Sounds like it really might solve the problem or help them build some dashboards. Final call to action. What can they do? Come visit us at holoviz.org. Uh, there's a tutorial that will take you kind of through the initial steps of using our projects and finally let you build a whole dashboard. So go there, check that out. Also check out examples.pyviz.org to see what you can do if you, if you master this stuff to build more complex examples. And then message me on Twitter or message our individual projects like holoviz or panel on Twitter. And if you got any longer form questions, join us on our discourse, which is at discourse.holopus.org. Super. All right. Well, it looks like a great project and I think people build cool things with it. So thanks for sharing it with us. Awesome. Thanks again. You bet. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode has been Philip Rudiger and it's been brought to you by Brilliant.org and Datadog. Brilliant.org encourages you to level up your analytical skills and knowledge. Visit talkpython.fm slash brilliant and get Brilliant Premium to learn something new every day. Datadog gives you visibility into the whole system running your code. Visit talkpython.fm slash datadog and see what you've been missing. They'll throw in a free t-shirt with your free trial. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps course. Or if you're looking for something more advanced, check out our new async course that digs into all the different types of async programming you can do in Python. And of course, if you're interested in more than one of these, be sure to check out our everything bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top.
You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. Mm-hmm.